0: Well, good morning, Branch Church. It's a blessing to be with you this morning as we continue our worship through the hearing and the receiving of God's Word. And good morning to our online audience as well. It's a blessing. We're glad that you joined us. Now, there are times in life where we judge someone too quickly only to regret it later. When I uh, finished high school, I was getting ready to go play college football and I would go back and I would use my high school football field to practice and getting ready for it. And one particular summer, I was going to the main football field and um, they were they were putting a new football field in and a new track. And so the one of the female campus supervisors, she told me I needed to leave. And so I was like, fine, I get it, I'll leave. So I went to the other side of the school uh, where there were more football fields, field goal post. I grew up using those, so it was all good. And lo and behold, Uh, 20 minutes later, she comes out and she finds me again. She tells me I need to to leave. And now I'm frustrated. I'm like, I'm not on campus. It's like 7.30 in the morning. It's summertime. No one's here. I'm training to try to be someone in life. Give me a break. Just let me kick my field goals. Well, she won and I left. And as I left, I muttered this under my breath. I said, there is no way that woman is a Christian. (laughs) That Sunday, I attended the Rock Church when they were over here at Ruffin Road. And I sat towards the middle, the middle back of the sanctuary at that time, and as I sat down, I looked up, and guess who I saw in the front row? That very same woman. I couldn't believe it, and I look back and go, I regret. I regret saying that. I really didn't know her. I had no idea. Obviously, I'm speaking in a lot of flesh, and I'm speaking in a lot of frustration at the moment. This is the same thing that is going on here in John chapter 7. We have a group of people who are going to misjudge Jesus too quickly. And Jesus is gonna call them out not to do this because to misjudge too quickly will not only be regrets here, it will be regret eternally for their souls because they're missing the very one who Jesus is. And today, as we read John chapter seven, we are gonna learn this, that God's promised living waters, the promised living water he talked about in the Old Testament, in other words, his Holy Spirit, it is found in coming, it is found in believing Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. He says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. After this, speaks of chapter 6. What happened in chapter 6? Jesus fed the thousands He had the bread of life discourse, eat my flesh, drink my blood, which we saw last week is really a metaphor, a striking metaphor for belief in Jesus. After this, we are now where Jesus is walking about only in Galilee. We're going to find out soon. It's going to be actually six months later. He's only walking about in Northern Israel. He's not walking in Judea or Southern Israel because they're seeking to take his life. The Galilean ministry is really highlighted by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They spend a lot of time there more than John does, and you can read more about that if you like. Verse three. So, his bro- oh, verse two. Sorry. Now the Jew- Now the now the Jews' feast of booths. Some of your versions might say feast of tabernacles was at hand. What was the feast of booths? Well, if you were to read Leviticus 23, verses 33 through 44 you will find it spelled out very clearly for you. I will summarize it for you now. The Feast of Booths was a week-long ceremony. First day and the last day was a day of rest. Everything in between was characterized by sacrifices, rejoicing in the harvest that just happened. We are in September, October. And it's also remembering God's past acts of grace. So the Feast of Booths, if you made it really simple, it's kind of these two things. They're celebrating the gathering of the harvest, grapes, olives, fruit, thank you, Lord. They gather, they come, and they praise God with these blessings. And then secondly, they are now living in little booths, little makeshift tabernacles, and remembering how God brought Israel out of Egypt, and he took care of them in the wilderness, and they lived in those at that time. I imagine as kids, that would have been very exciting. Josephus says that of all the, of the three main feasts, the Feast of Booths was the most popular. Most people came to this. You imagine coming and people setting up little campsites on their roof. Remember, they had flat roofs in their courtyards, all over. As kids, I imagine they would have been stoked. We're going camping. This is so much fun. But don't remember, guys, we're here to worship God. Verse three. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea. Why? Because the Feast of Booths is coming up. That your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus' brothers approach him, and based on the conversation, it seems that they are mocking him. All right, Mr. Miracle, Mr., I have all these air quotes, disciples. Oh, by the way, what happened six months prior? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. His disciples, disciples, air quote, they said, this is hard. This is offensive. Who's able to put up with this? And they left. So Jesus is down to like the 12 now. And they seem to be mocking him. They they don't seem to deny his miracles, but now's the time, Jesus, if you want to go and get your followers back, there's going to be a lot of people there, Mr. Miracle Worker. Why don't you go down and get them? And then it says in verse five, for they did not believe in him. It's really interesting. From his brother's perspective, you can imagine how most of you probably have a sibling. And to have your sibling tell you something like this, hey, by the way, I'm the son of God. You'd be like, dude, get out of my face. We've known you your whole life, dentist appointments, birthdays, just stop it. Just stop it, okay? So you can imagine how, how that might've been hard for them, but they were still required to believe on him just like everybody else. And then from Jesus' side, you can imagine his struggle. His brothers gave him a hard time. How many of you had a brother that gave you a hard time? right? They're mocking him. They don't even believe in him. Jesus truly is going to be alone here as we get to the end of the gospel. His disciples betray him. His brothers don't believe in him. All he really has at the end of the day is who? God, the father. And is that enough? You better believe it. Verse six, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. So Jesus brings up an issue of timing. Now there's at least three Greek words for time, chronos, which is where we get our word chronology, right? It's this extended calendar time. That's not the word used. There's another Greek word, hora, which sounds like hour. Jesus is gonna talk about how his hour has not come. And the hour here in John is gonna be that predetermined hour. The predetermined hour when the father will have Jesus die for the sins of the world and then raise again. That word's not used either, even though it's used all throughout John. John has a very specific word here that Jesus uses. The Greek word is kairos. Kairos refers to a opportune or a a, a right timing, if you will. So when Jesus says this, he says, my right timing is not yet. In other words, because he's going to say this, and this is why I bring all this up. He's going to say, I'm not going to the feast. And then he goes to the feast. Well, is he lying? Is he, is he tricking? Like, what is he doing here? No, Jesus is not being frazzled or, or indecisive. He's simply saying the right time has not yet come because who determines the time when Jesus does things? The Father does. And this we're gonna see a great example here in a second. Jesus says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, and here's what he says, for my time, my kairos, the right time, has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but he did so in private, and so we see here once again that Jesus operates at the Father's timing. Somehow, the Father seems to have signaled to him, it's the right time, it's the time to go, and so Jesus now goes to Jerusalem, and, and this is another truth that John hits over again. Jesus is not led by man. Jesus is led by God the Father. Jesus will not be manipulated by a man. Go down and show your power, right? Show off your glory. Get those disciples, because it's about just getting numbers and people. No, I'm about walking with the Father and his timing. What an incredible example we see here as, as we understand how Jesus actually gets to the feast in the first place. It's not because man is dictating anything, it is because God the Father is his sole leader in what he does. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and they were saying, where is he? This is likely the Jewish authorities. Where is he? Right, you know those old kind of movies that walk around with a picture, you seen this guy? Have you seen this guy? Have you seen this guy? except they didn't have pictures back then, right? Verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So here we learn how Jesus is actually going to get from Galilee to the feast, led by the father, not by man. And when he gets there, what awaits him? Possibly handcuffs, possibly the sword, We got people talking trash about him. Some people are like, oh, he's pretty good, right? He's got this whole gamut. And so us as readers, we go, what's going to happen next? What's he going to do? What are they going to do? Let's find out. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, this is day three or day four of that seven-day feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning? when he has never studied. This is both a compliment and it is both a concern. Compliment, this guy can exposit the word. Ain't nobody opened the Old Testament and helped us understand it, illuminate, make sense, give analogies like Jesus. This is incredible. Can you imagine being able to actually hear a sermon by Jesus? Well, isn't that great? You actually can. We got the Sermon on the Mount. We have the word of God. Now you may not hear him audibly give it as I am to you this morning, but we have his word. We have God's sermons that he's given to us in narrative form, poetic form, letter form, apocalyptic form, we have it here. Now the concern is this. Well, you're not attached to any rabbinic center of learning here. You got no rabbinical oversight no rabbi putting a stamp of approval on you. So we're a little concerned that you're operating on your own. You're all about yourself. This is the concern here. We know it's a concern by the way Jesus is going to respond to them in just a second. Now, rightly so, if someone showed up and they were only speaking on their own authority, they were speaking outside of the historical context of the of the church. It's theology that's been trusted and tried and, and tried again and, and written down in creedal format and in worship for centuries. If someone shows up outside of that, we better be concerned. Amen. And it's happened. The 18th century, I'm sorry, the 19th century, the 1800s in America was case in point. We had three religions show up, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and Christian science. Why? Because they did the very same thing here that these people are afraid of. But with Jesus, we don't need to be concerned because of the next verse here, verse 16. And I love this verse. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but it's his who sent me. Jesus makes very clear that he is not operating on his own. I'm not bringing my own teaching. My teaching is God's teaching. Just as God's work, Jesus's works from chapter five, Jesus's works are God's works. So his teaching is is God's teaching. I think most of us would probably say we have a life verse or a verse that means a lot to you. For me, Romans 1:16. if you don't have a life verse, take this one. It says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. That hits like everything for me. My personality, I'm, I'm fired up, I'm not ashamed because of God's power and he saved me. Trusting in him by faith alone. It's just it's so much all there in my heart. If I had to pick a teaching verse that was a life verse, which I think I've already done this years ago. It's this one. And I memorized it originally in the NIV. My teaching is not my own, it comes from him who sent me. If you are a teacher, it doesn't have to be your life verse or even maybe your favorite, but it definitely needs to be a verse that is significant and dear to your heart. If you are a small group leader, if you are leading in any capacity with God's word, Let this verse sink deeply into your heart. My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Now, I don't know if you know this. You do. I don't know if you know this, but your good looks aren't going to make someone feel better when they're having a very hard day. Your charisma is not going to change somebody and give them the perseverance they need to get through something. What do people need? They need Jesus. They need his word. They need God's word at the end of the day, you don't even need my commentary. You need to understand the word. The hope is that when I teach, you walk away and you can read the verses later today and go, I understand better what it means because you're understanding his words, not mine. My words don't have any power. Our words as teacher don't have power. Where does transformation really take place? We plant seeds, we water. Who causes change and growth? God the Father, and so we should never be ashamed as teachers, small group leaders, to stand on this and help people understand this, amen? Jesus says in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Jesus sets up a little bit of a test here. How do you know if I'm really speaking God's teaching or not? Jesus starts him here by desiring and wanting to do God's will. If you really want to do God's will, if you really want to believe what God has said, you will find out that Jesus speaks truth, because that's what God affirms, that's what God will bless, that's what God is drawing people to, Jesus and his words. Remember last week, the Father is drawing people to whom? To Jesus, to his Son, because his Son is carrying out his will and saving those which the Father gives to him. In our culture, we might say something like, seeing is believing. Biblically, it's the other way around. Believing is seeing. And we will see this at the end of the gospel. We will see it with Thomas in the resurrection stories. Blessed are those who believe and haven't seen yet. And when you do believe, you will actually see and understand even more. Jesus says, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there's no falsehood. Jesus makes clear he is seeking the glory of another. And we know who that is. That is God, the Father. And here we have this incredible picture of Jesus. He's led by God, the Father. He teaches God, the Father's words, and he seeks God, the Father's glory. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Father, lead me, Father, help me to know your words and share your words. And Father, help me to live for your glory and your name's sake. Jesus modeled that. And you have to go, I'll speak for myself. Boy, do I fall short. God, help me, grow me into that, mature me into that. I wanna be like that. Jesus shifts gears a little bit and he's gonna talk about them now. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. He says, why do you seek to kill me? You're not keeping the law, you're harboring murder in your hearts. Remember the ninth commandment guys? The crowd answered, I can't believe they said this. Imagine you're there and you hear someone say this to Jesus, your Lord, you have a demon. You'd be like, whoa, bro, you don't even know what you just said, please just go over there and take a deep breath. You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Now, if you were from Galilee, Northern Israel, you probably didn't have an ear to the ground what was going on in Judea, Southern Israel. But if you're from southern Israel, you probably had a better idea. No, there's actually people trying to kill him. Like we know, we're we're hearing it, right? There's whispers. So it's probably Galileans talking here. I don't know for sure. Verse 21: Jesus answered them, "I did one work, and you all marvel at it. What was the one work he did? The last time he was in Jerusalem, here in the Gospel of John, was chapter five. The man who had. Uh, he was a paralytic for 38 years, couldn't walk. Jesus did what? He healed him. He made him whole and they marveled. Not in a good way. Wow, keep up the good work, brother. No, it was like, I can't believe you are walking on the Sabbath, holding your mat. Dude, my legs just got fixed after 38 years. Give me a break, right? This is the struggle with it and Jesus is gonna turn it back on them. Moses gave you circumcision. Quick clarification, not that it was from Moses, but it was from the fathers, right? Abraham had it way before he did Moses gave you circumcision and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath, a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath, I made a a man's whole body well? Let me try to summarize it. So this is one of those dilemmas in the law. We got to keep the Sabbath and we have to circumcise the boy on the eighth day what happens when the circumcision lands on the Sabbath day? Now what do we do? Well, so they're trying to figure these things out. And so they came up with 39 ways to keep the Sabbath. And even though this contradicted it, we still got to do it. So we decided to keep this law over this one. And, you know, they did one of those things. And Jesus is like, if you're going to do that, they're not really understanding Sabbath. If you're going to do that to break the Sabbath in the way you're thinking, is it really that, are you angry with me because I healed someone on the Sabbath and made their body whole again? According to your own standards, guys, what do you think? Shouldn't that be good? Don't you realize, guys, I'm not a Sabbath breaker. I'm a Sabbath healer. They're missing it. And Jesus says this. This is one of the main applications of this story. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. They have misjudged Jesus too quickly. Jesus doesn't tell them not to judge. He tells them how to judge. And how are they to judge? with right judgment. How do they judge with right judgment? Look at the miracle. Look at what he's doing. Look at who it is, who he is. Put it all together. What do you get? You have someone who is doing the works of the Father, teaching the words of God. There is no sin we can find on this guy. This is is someone special. This must be the Christ. This must be the Son of God. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is. He's speaking openly. And they they say nothing to him. Can, Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? People are shocked. Aren't they trying to arrest that guy? And he's in front of everyone talking and no one's doing anything? Did they change their mind? Do they really think he's the Christ? Verse 27, they say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Okay, a little bit of a clarification here. They do know the Christ will come from Bethlehem, the city of David. They do know the Christ will come from David's line and be a son of David. But here, their, their theology's off. This is what they thought. They thought the Messiah wouldn't be revealed until the glory rescue of Israel took place. So really, it's not gonna happen. You're not gonna know the Messiah. As far as I've understood, the Messiah wouldn't even know who he was until that moment when the glory, the rescue, the escape from Egypt, if you will, was going to happen. But here's Jesus already knowing who he is. Here's Jesus not fitting in according to what they thought. Their theology was bad to begin with, unfortunately. Verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord he who sent me is true, and you don't know him. I don't come here on my own. He's saying the same thing again. I come from the one who sent me is true, and you don't know him because you don't know me. He says, I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid, it says a hand here. I believe there's a definite article in the Greek. No one laid the hand. What hand? You know, that hand to take him away and by force arrest him or bring him under their power and control. No one put that hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Hour, that's that Greek word. Another one, hora, the hour, the predetermined hour. Why was no one able to take Jesus under their control and under force? Because the father set a predetermined plan when Jesus would die and rise and they could not stop that. They could not alter it. It didn't matter how upset they were. God had set a plan and nothing was going to deter that from happening. Our God is so powerful when he predetermines something, when he makes a plan, there is no hand you or I or anyone can put on it that's going to mess it up, amen? Verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees, mm, they heard the crowd muttering, They heard them grumbling these things about him. And so we see the chief priests and the Pharisees, they sent officers to arrest him. They called the temple guards who was under the captain of the temple guard. These were Levites. And the captain of the temple guard was second in power under the high priest. There's a lot of power going on here. And these guys are gonna go, we're here to take you in. Today, the story won't finish because it'll come back next week. But remember this because i love the interaction with the temple guards and jesus they come back it's so good it's so good jesus then said i will be with you a little longer and then i'm going to him who sent me you will seek me and you will not find me where i am you cannot come then uh, the jews said to one another where does this man intend to go that we will not find him does he intend to go to the dispersion among the greeks and teach the greeks is he going to leave israel and he's going to go teach the, the Greek Jews or the Greek people? Like, we, we don't understand. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So far, we have learned how Jesus got to the feast by the Father's timing. And then we've seen him stand up and teach at the feast. And as we saw him teach, we saw very clearly that he teaches the Father's words and he's going to return to the Father in due time. Now, Jesus in this last part is going to make a proclamation. He's going to make a call to himself and this is significant here. This is a climactic part of this episode. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I thought it was funny that there's rain today. <laughs> Who, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The last day, this could be day seven or day eight based on how the feast worked, probably day seven because there's a special ceremony that happens. There is a water pouring ceremony and it makes more sense that he would do it probably right after that Versus the next day, right? The day after Thanksgiving, right? Not as exciting. The day after the Super Bowl, things kind of come down. It's probably that day. And Jesus stands and he cries. He doesn't speak softly. He doesn't just talk. He cries. Why do you cry something out? Because you sincerely and maybe even desperately want someone to hear it. And what does he cry out for everyone to hear? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink before we get into the meaning of this, we have to talk about the timing. Last and greatest day of the feast. Do you know what happened on this day? Well, the high priest would lead this procession and they would take this thing called a flag on. Think of just a pitcher, old pitcher. And they would take water from the pool of Salome and they would bring it back in this procession. And as they come to the south gate, they would blow the shofar horn three times. And then as they come to the altar, they'd circle it. And in one hand, they had these palm branches and myrtle. On the other hand, they had fruit, picturing the, the harvest they just got. And they would lift their hands and they would say three times, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And they would take that water, they pour it into a silver bowl, along with wine into another silver bowl. They pour all that out before the Lord. And this becomes a picture of many things. Remember the water that came out of the rock in the desert? God speaks of sending his spirit, this water to come, this living water in the Old Testament, This is a picture of God's provision. This is a picture of God's spirit. This is a picture of the Messiah age. And Jesus stands up and says, whoever comes to me and drink, that's theirs. Now the meaning. If anyone thirsts, the reality is we all thirst. Nobody has living water inside them. We're all a desert, we're parched, we're dry. That's just a picture of sin. Sin has left us without life. I think of it like this. It's kind of silly, but bear with me. We're like toy robots. And we had these batteries put in us and we took the batteries out and threw them away and we put Doritos in there instead. And we're like, this is great. This is great. I love Doritos. The reality is, is you're just slowly dying, right? There needs to be a a power source, something in you. You got to plug up to something. But when we unplug from God, we lose that power source because he is the only infinite power source. Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he he tells us what drink means. It means to believe, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, this is a promise, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We see that what God has promised, the living waters, what God has promised his Holy Spirit, it's now found in coming to Jesus. Eternal life can be seen maybe as this abstract and very impersonal thing. Oh, we're gonna live forever. No, eternal life is highly personal because God takes himself, his spirit and puts him inside of you. Puts that battery back in, in a sense, but it's not just any battery. It's the infinite source of life and love. And now it lives in you and it keeps producing life forever because he is in you and you are with him. Can I get a witness? You've seen the, the, the Marvel movies, right? There's these po- infinity stones and these powers and uh, the Justice League, they had like the mother box. I'm not sure exactly, but it's something like that. Transformers, they had a power box, right? All these power boxes, all this power to live and to do things. Do you know where that really is and resides? God, God is the infinite source of power. And God has made a promise pictured as a refreshing source of water and water does so much water is so beautiful and how it nourishes and how it keeps us healthy and fresh. And when you believe upon Jesus, he says, this is where it is. You see, Jesus not only follows the father. He not only teaches the father's words. He not only seeks the father's glory. He gives the father's spirit. He is the very location, the very person in which you find the very thing you need as an empty, dry desert. We're all running out of time. But Jesus has come and he has brought that living waters. And for all who will bow their knee and say, I believe, turn from their sin and say, I believe, you will have that. And for those of you, many of you in here today who believe, do you realize what is inside of you? The most personal, powerful, wonderful Lord God Almighty has put his spirit in you. You were changed because of that. You were here because of that. You believe because of that. You have strength, change, transformation, all because of that. God is so gracious. To give us of Himself, it really struck me in studying this week. It's not like, oh, here you just live forever, way to go. It's no me, in you and with you, and that's life. Jesus will tell us in John 17 what eternal life is: is to know God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. We'll continue on next week because the story is quite a big story. But for today, we see that. When it comes to Jesus, we wanna make a right judgment. We don't wanna judge by mere appearances of what we think or what someone else has told us. We have got to come to his word and know who he is. When I try to share the gospel, emphasis on try, I wanna get people to read Jesus's words. Those little gospels of John back there, I wanna get it in front of people. I did it this morning. Gas station, why not? Have one of on my glove box, pull it out, walked up to a gentleman, both pumping gas. He said he was a Catholic. And so I wanted to make sure he really understood. I turned to John 3, 3 and, you know, been born again. And so I walked away. Man, that was pathetic, Sean. But, you know, you got God's word in front of him. At least there was something, right? At least there was something. Let us make a right judgment. Not like the world. Saw an article this week. It was five reasons that Jesus seemed to to not exist. And and it was like, come on, guys. We're doing this again. And I read them and I sent out a diva only the first one. I may send the other ones out, but some of the stuff that's being said is just so crazy. Like Paul didn't think James and, and Peter were really really Christians and came down hard on them. And it's like, this, just read the Bible for yourself, man. Come on. And you'll see he did rebuke Peter, but you got to put it all together. This is why Bible study is so important. And before I start ranting and raving, we're going to close and we're going to take communion now and remember the great gift that Jesus Christ has given us in his sacrifice.